Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we turn to a really wonderful passage this morning. A really challenging and and yet helpful passage. And we pray that as I bring what I've prepared, as we bring our own thoughts and ears and hearts to it, that your blessing will be upon our learning and thinking upon this text together, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do turn to this very helpful and important text this morning, and as we do so, we really, really do come to the most significant turning point in the unfolding story of Matthew's Gospel. Now, I know that I've mentioned quite a few times in the last few weeks that each text we've come to has been kind of like a turning point. And I can assure you that each text we've looked at has actually been a turning point. It was so when Jesus crossed the border into the Gentile lands with his disciples. It was so too when he came back into Jewish territory and was challenged by the religious leaders in order to find a way to trap and accuse him. But all those turning points pale into insignificance behind this one we're thinking about this morning. The one where Jesus not only asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? But also revealed for us what was ahead for him in terms of his death and resurrection. We could also view this text not just as a turning point, but also a summit, a high point, a mountaintop in Jesus' training of the disciples because in this passage Jesus deals with them so openly and with such purpose that we cannot fail to notice the importance of what he said for their benefit and, of course, for ours also. And where do you end, when you add into the mix the fact that this text has been a point of controversy in the church since the days of the Reformation, then you have a text of top-level significance as we hear the conversation between Jesus and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Two things this morning. First we see from the text two vital questions from Jesus. Two vital questions from Jesus. So the scene before us is set at Caesarea Philippi, just once again across the border of Israel into the regions north of the country, but this time on the coast possibly high up in the mountainous region, maybe even with a spectacular view of the Mediterranean Sea looking away to the west, where Jesus pops the first of two questions. Who do people say, who do people think that I am? Now Jesus isn't so much asking this question because he was interested in what people were saying about him. It's not as though He would have a good or bad day dependent on his disciples' understanding of the popularity polls or the gossip columns. 
See, Jesus knew very well what the people thought of who he was. The Pharisees had offered the view already that he was Satan himself. The Gentiles perceived him as a miracle worker. So it wasn't as if Jesus needed to know what the crowds thought, but he asked the question in order to get the disciples talking. And they did, giving four varied responses, beginning with, some say you're John the Baptist. Now this was the view of Herod. He thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead, come back to convict him. And apparently there were some who agreed with him. Now Jesus and John had many similarities. They were both godly men. They both had vital roles in the work of the kingdom of God. They both proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, its nearness and the need to repent. So their messages were similar in their character also. But John wasn't Jesus and John wasn't the Messiah and the two were clearly not the same. The next answer they gave was that Jesus was Elijah. Again, this was something of a compliment to Jesus. Elijah was a great prophet. Elijah preached boldly against idolatry. He did supernatural healings, great miracles, and proclaimed the kingdom of God and declared the truth. But Elijah was a mere man, and we see his own failings at the very climax of his ministry where he ran from his God-given task. Quite the opposite of how Jesus would persevere on the road to the cross. Yes, Jesus and Elijah were alike in some ways, but Jesus was not Elijah. Then the disciples came up with the answer, or some say you're Jeremiah. And again, what a great compliment for Jesus. There's no better example, Old Testament example of perseverance under undeserved suffering than this prophet who was in one sense so much like Jesus, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But no, Jesus was not Jeremiah. And then they added, or one of the other prophets. No particular prophet, just one of them which again he was not. Now what's the main problem with these answers that the disciples are giving on behalf of the crowds? It's this, they all fail to recognise the uniqueness of Jesus. Yes, he may have been like John or like Elijah or like Jeremiah in some way, but that's as far as it went. In reality, he was far greater than all of them. You could combine them all and he'd still be in a class by himself. So every one of these, single one of these designations fell short. None of them told the whole story. You don't understand Jesus if you think he is a great teacher. You don't understand him if you think he's a great prophet. He was much more than that. So all of these compliments were in the end little more than rejections. Do you understand the message in that for you? It's not enough to think highly of Jesus. It's not enough to have respect for Jesus. If you're going to follow him and be his disciple, you must get this matter of who he is right from the outset. 
We're not to follow a Jesus as I understand him. We're not encouraged to follow a Jesus who fits the popular opinion of the people either or a Jesus of our own imaginations for to do so is to miss the point about him entirely. That was his first question. The second question continues in the same vein, asking not what the crowds thought about who he was, but who the disciples thought. Verses 15 and 16. And so we see this most important question, but who do you say that I am? And in the original, the you is plural and emphatic. Jesus wanted to know who they thought he was, those 12 before him, all of them. And by asking this, he separated their opinions into a different category than those of what the crowds had come up with. What do you think? And typically, Simon Peter spoke up. Now in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, Peter is only twice called Simon Peter. And in both times, he's referred to in this way in a moment of great solemnity and significance. And so it is here. Simon Peter spoke up. And as he did, he represented the other 11 beside or behind him. It's not unusual in the Gospels for Peter often spoke up as the representative of all. But we need to note that Peter had already professed that he knew the identity of Jesus before. We saw that on the day when Jesus walked on the water. But this is different. This time Peter's life is not on the line. This is a moment where he has time to respond and give a reasoned answer and he's not sinking into the water as he does so. And note the definiteness of his response. There are only ten words, but in the original Greek there are four definite articles, that's the, expressed with emphasis. Peter doesn't reflect on how confused the crowds might be, but he shoots straight from the hip with this profound, answer, this profound answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Two parts. First of all, he says you are the Christ. By saying that, he's saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the King who is to come the long-awaited deliverer that we've been longing for and hoping for. And then he adds to that, you are the son of the living God. That is, you are God's unique son in a sense that is not applicable to any other person in the whole world. One commentator says here, Peter knew that Jesus was just not just another in a long line of prophets to whom God had spoken in many ways in the past, but that he was the son of the living God who knew as only such a son could know the mind and purposes of his father. This is quite an extraordinary claim that Peter is setting forth And this profession of his 
sits at the very centre and heart of the Christian faith. We could take time right here to note how this is so in the context of the New Testament letters that follow and the formation of the theology of the early Christian church that follows. But that would take us so long, too long. So take that as read in this statement. Here is the nub, here is the heart, here is the centre focus of the Christian faith. And Peter got it spot on. No lesser estimation of Jesus is possible or will do. From the outset, this is what the apostles taught and what the church knew to be the truth. And not just the church as a whole, but the individuals who make up the church. Every true believer will make this confession. You are the Christ the Son of the living God. It certainly remains part of our membership vows. You cannot be a member of this church unless that is both understood and confessed and said. And this means not merely assenting to that truth, not merely confessing it with words, but it also means believing this with hearts and minds and will. And these two questions, of course, come from the lips of Jesus for one goal, to elicit from his own disciples that very confession, that they, in a world of so many opinions and increasing hostility towards Jesus, might be certain where they stand in a world where they will soon see him despised and hated and crucified. And Peter's response, let's note this, is one that continues to challenge us. Is this what you believe? Suppose I or someone else were to ask this question of you. Would this be your unqualified response? Something you would stake your life on. Something you would risk your job for, your reputation for, your family for, your life for. Remember that this question about the identity of Jesus can remain unanswered by any of us considering its importance not just for life now but the life to come also. So much is at stake when Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? Even where you will spend eternity depending on the answer you give. So those are the two questions from Jesus and now we have three vital statements that follow it up in verses 17 to 20. We see in verse 17 after Peter had spoken these words that the very first response that Jesus gives is to tell Peter that he didn't figure this out on his own. That this response of him, of his, was not simply the result of learning something from another human being or a book or clever thinking. 
that this was the result of a revelation from God the Father to him. Take careful note of the contrast here. The crowds had seen many of the same things that Peter had seen. The crowds had heard many of the same things that Peter had heard. The crowds had been with Jesus, maybe not to the extent that Peter had been with Jesus, but they'd been with him as well. They had seen him act, they had heard him teach, they benefited from his miracles. And yet Peter gets it right and the crowds don't. And Jesus is saying to him, the reason that you get this right and they don't is because isn't because of anything more that you have seen that they haven't, but because God has opened your eyes and shown it to you. And by the way, Jesus says it in a striking way, doesn't he? He says, it's because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. Jesus, even in that phrase, reveals his uniqueness. Do you know that in the Gospels, Jesus never addresses God as our Father. He always addresses God as either my Father or your Father. And when he tells us to pray, of course he says, pray like this, pray our Father. But Jesus' relationship to God is unique because he is the only unique Son of God. And then there's the second statement that Jesus gives here, which is also for Peter's sake and ours, something that's caused much controversy for many years in verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now you'll know that the word rock in this passage, which is the meaning of Peter's name, has been variously understood and the various understandings have well and truly divided the church over the centuries. The traditional view of the Roman Catholic Church here is that the passage establishes Peter as the first pope and all his successes as the foundation of the church. That is to say, Peter is the rock and the church will be built upon him as if Peter is some sort of foundation stone, ever dependable, tried and true and unfailing. But all you have to do is have a sneak peek into the next verses, at verse 23, where Jesus speaks to Peter and references his words as being from Satan. And that view is quickly dispatched. Then some people have said that this phrase... The rock refers to the confession that Peter made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God and that therefore Jesus is saying, upon this truth I will build my church. Now, the problem is the phrase that Matthew gives us here in Greek is based most likely on the Aramaic that Jesus would have been speaking and the word Peter and the word rock have the same meaning in Aramaic. If that's the case, then Jesus is saying something very, still very personal to Peter as representative of the apostles so that in some sense the church would still be built on him. But there's a third way that it can be read. 
This view takes the phrase the rock to mean Peter and to the other disciples, the other apostles, as the immediate foundation of the church, something which the New Testament affirms. This is not to deny that Jesus is the head of the church, but it is to say that the apostles were certainly the foundation. Paul says, Ephesians 2, 19 to 20, So then, you, God's people, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of what? the apostles and prophets. Did you hear that? The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. And you know what? When we turn to John's vision in Revelation 21, 14, and we see the picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, what is the foundation of that city, the heavenly Jerusalem? The names of the apostles and the elders. So Jesus is here saying the apostles will have a unique role in the foundation as being the foundation of the church. Calvin says that Jesus is saying though you are now a tiny number of men and therefore your confession, Jesus Messiah, has little worth at present time yet the time will soon come when it will stand out splendidly and will spread far wider. This helps us understand what Jesus meant in his third statement when he says that he will give to Peter and to the apostles the keys to the kingdom. Jesus is saying here that he is vesting his apostles with the authority to open and close the door of the kingdom of God through their preaching of the gospel and their exercise of discipline in the church. Open the book of Acts and you will see that it was so. Open the book up and you'll see both strands. Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2 and thousands coming in. Peter exercising church discipline in Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira going out. So what is the goal of Jesus in saying these things to his disciples, these three vital statements? His goal is to make it absolutely crystal clear that what Peter has confessed has always been and is always and must always be at the very centre and the heart of the gospel itself. And the church, we exist, we are here. For no other purpose but to make known that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, whose death and resurrection would happen as part of his rescue plan. And the news of that rescue plan is what we call the gospel. Jesus the Messiah would be betrayed, he would suffer, he would bleed and die, he would be raised on the third day. That's the kind of Messiah that he would be. It's the kind of message we proclaim. A crucified, dead and risen Messiah. 
That's the sum and the substance of the salvation that he would bring. There is no other foundation. And anyone who comes along and says that Christianity is about something else or founded on something else is a liar and false. Now I haven't left myself much time to apply all this, have I? Except to say that now you might understand why Jesus went on to sternly warn his disciples not to say anything about this. What was that? For surely Jesus would want the whole world to know. But silence was the call. You are not to tell anyone. Because these apostles had not yet understood the full implications of this. Peter, who got it right here, got it so wrong in the next verses. And Jesus would not want them to spread a message that was wide open to being misunderstood by them or by the world who didn't get him. But don't don't take that ban on them speaking as being a ban for you. It isn't. For ours is the task, the glorious task, the God-given task, the believer's task to declare the identity of Jesus no matter what the opinion polls say about him. He is our message and it's you and I, God's people, who must by lips and lives make it clear to the waiting world Because as we've seen, they're more than likely to get it wrong, aren't they? But first you need to know this for yourselves before you can tell another. And that's why we read from Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so I put it to you. I ask you. I charge you. Who do you say that he is? And if you know the answer, who will you tell who needs to hear? Let's pray together. We bring thanks, Heavenly Father, for all of your word. Some of it is clearer and more relevant than others, of course. And this wonderful text which we've thought about briefly. We thank you for the challenge that's there before us to know the identity of Jesus, to believe that, not just to have words that say, yes, I can say what Peter said, but to believe that as well and so confess it with our mouths and to do that in the world that hates him and looks down upon him and fails to understand the vital reason why we need to know him. 
And so I pray that we all would confess Christ, the one and only, Jesus Messiah, Son of God. Help us in this. Reveal to us, as you did for Peter long ago, how important this truth would be that all your word centres around it and upon it and all your promises. Thank you for the challenge before us as we think about who we could tell, knowing that there is no blanket ban anymore. In fact, the opposite. We are encouraged to go and tell, to shout to the world of Christ the Messiah, the Son of God. So hear us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.